Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Comp Day Podcast. I'm your host, Dre. Um, thank you so much for joining us in this hot summer day. <laughs> and I'm very excited about this. I'm usually excited about all my interviews, but this is a dream interview that no one knows that I was wishing for, praying for. And then it naturally happened, but we'll talk about that through the episode. I have I have a I have an icon in my room. I have an icon in my room. She's extremely humble, but she's an icon. Um, I have Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is a leading diversity and inclusion expert and a dynamic keynote speaker, because that drew me to those videos. Yes. Best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and she also has a podcast. It's called The Will to Change. It will give you life. It will teach you. Please share it with your bosses, your colleagues, your friends, your family, everybody, um, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. As the founder and president and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, Jennifer's workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits, including Walmart, Microsoft, Starbucks, Toyota Financial Services, T-Mobile, and many others to help employees bring their full selves to work and feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. Um, I can definitely say that Jennifer is an inspiration. She is a mentor, and most importantly, she's a friend of mine, and I'm so happy to have her in my life. Um, Jennifer, I basically shared on the Usually when intros happen, we share um, names, what we do for a living and identity, but I already basically gave your name <laughs> out and everything you do. So if you can kind of introduce yourself and like what you do and your, the identities you hold. Oh my goodness, Dre, I'm so humbled by your introduction. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Um, you give me life because <laughs> we've got to hang together in this work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, hey, everyone, I'm Jennifer Brown and... I've had my own company in the diversity inclusion consulting space now for 12 years, I think. Um, and I now have almost two books. I can't believe I'm a serial author. It's, um, it's wild and wonderful. And I am a keynoter. You're right. I spend a lot of my time um, on stages. I was an opera singer in my earlier years. And so it equipped me well to be on stages of all sizes and in all situations and, um, and bring that kind of performer energy to the message, which helps, of course, get adoption, which is what we care about. Um, I live in New York in the city with my partner of 22 years. Um, we don't have any human children. We have furry ones. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sort of joined, I think, through our mutual a activism. Honestly, we met as community organizers in our 20s back when I was working in nonprofits before I left to go to New York to study opera. And so we share a common passion for wanting to make the world a better place. And even though I like to say um, I'm still an activist, but I'm enacting all of that in the workplace and particularly in larger institutions, which is I know what we're going to talk about today. Like how, what are the particular um, vicissitudes of causing uh, causing or enacting change or encouraging change when you're dealing with like massive global companies with uh, tens or th hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> no small feet <laughs> so jennifer as we mentioned you work in the diversity inclusion and equity space also known as dei a lot of folks for them they've only known it hearing about the acronym in terms of um 
either very successful campaigns like Gillette or they hear about it in some um, a mishap that needs to be um, rectified, such as on um, one of your clients Starbucks um, worked on doing diligent work in. So either it's um, this wonderful message or it is um, crisis management. What is DEI? <laughs> <laughs> well, I never knew that it existed as a profession and as a career and a field. And I, as many of us, most of us, I'd say we kind of happen into it. You know, we, the people who do DEI now for a living probably started doing it as volunteers um, on the side of their desk, as we say, um, perhaps for their company, perhaps they were a, um, a volunteer in the affinity groups in their company. So the Women's Network, LGBTQ Network, Black Network, Network uh, Disabilities Network. And um, so when we say DEI professionals, we I think it typically refers to the internal folks that have been doing it either officially or unofficially and hoping to do it officially someday because honestly, most people do because you get bitten by the bug and you don't want to let it go. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this work is really important and I feel like it's awakened my purpose and a lot of people have that awakening, right? And then they want to do the job full time. And so people inside companies can call themselves DEI practitioners and then also, of course, all of us consultants who are outside outside looking in, trying to influence organizations. Um, and, and we can be nonprofits, for-profits, uh, single-person shops, companies like mine where I have a team of almost 25 people. Um, but we're all practitioners. And um, what differs, I guess, is the structure that we put around ourselves, like whether we want to be an inside voice or whether we want to be sort of an agitator from the outside <laughs> teacher, maybe is a better word. Um, and then how big do we want to grow that? And then also what role do you want to play as a practitioner? Do you want to be a researcher? Do you want to be a classroom facilitator? There's some people that just specialize in training, you know, and they do unconscious bias training. They love being in the room with learners. And that's actually how I got my start. Um, I was a leadership trainer um, and then diversity was kind of this thing that was related to my LGBT identity, but I didn't know I could do it as a job and kind of fold it in with my leadership development chops and skills. And then once I kind of combined those, I said, oh, okay, now I get it. I meant to be facilitating dialogue, um, but around DE and I, which is fundamentally a leadership discussion. It really is. It all comes back to that, and we could talk about that. So, yeah, I think there's um, it's a growing field. It's more and more on companies' radar screens. They're hiring more, more DEI professionals, and I'm seeing smaller and smaller companies hire their first, whereas I would say five years ago that size company would never have thought about having someone in that role. And then if they don't have someone in that role, they will, they're also thinking of hiring external consultants to come in and teach them what should we be doing. And that's often what we are asked to do is sort of come in and be the proxy for the team that doesn't exist yet or perhaps be the arms and legs and thought partner for a single practitioner who's inside a company and likely overwhelmed because it's a giant job and they're under-resourced and have no team and <laughs> <laughs> sound maybe familiar. Um, so, so we are, we're the helper that comes in and can kind of meet people wherever their needs are. You know, we can, we can kind of fill in around somebody and help them achieve a strategy, which is, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of strategy and planning and influencing. And um, there's so many 
skill sets wrapped up in DEI work. It's I think of it as one of the most complex professional roles that exists. It's um, hard to do well and so much is riding on you. And you care so deeply on a personal level about your output and what you achieve, of course, because this often is your story. It's often, you know, you're trying to create a better workplace for people like you. You know, it starts with us, a lot of us, or it starts for some of us who are allies. You know, we we care deeply because we have a family member, loved one. You know, we we somehow in our lives, we sort of come to this work and we don't want to let it go. Um, but but there the stakes are really high, both professionally and personally for all of us. But I think we're so lucky because it's it's like deeply soulful work. So um, it's like the challenge of a lifetime. It's a, the most passionate work you could ever do for some of us. And um, we try to stay in it and not burn out. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's, that's a mission. <laughs> right? <laughs> Hang in there by your toenails. Oh, it's, it's sometimes tiring. We could talk about compassion fatigue later if you like. <laughs> Definitely. I'm always down to talk about compassion fatigue. <laughs> um, but um, for, as you mentioned, Jennifer's fam, and if you want to know what fam means, fam is what we LGBT folks, LGBTQIA. Mm-hmm. That's how we um, identify each other. So it's another word basically for queer. We're like, that's fam. It, are they fam? Oh, family. <laughs> so Gen- Jennifer's Yay. fam. Yeah. And um, Jennifer also mentioned um, that she's an ally. And um, many folks might not really know if they don't know Jennifer's work. Jennifer is also Caucasian, and people may be surprised why is a Caucasian person in this space? And one thing I love that you say is everyone has a diversity story. And DEI is just as important to um, a cisgendered white man as it is to a black trans woman. It it matters just as much. And a lot of folks, I think, see like, oh, it's the extreme. It's a black woman with an afro. And that's <laughs> what it's, or a, a black woman with locks. That's what it's supposed to support. And it's like, no, it's for all of us because we're all connected. Um so can you tell us a bit about your diversity story and how that influenced you coming into the space? Yeah. Well, you're right, Dre, that, that that question comes up a lot. And when I walk on keynote stages, I make sure to make kind of a joke about it. I say, I might not have been the diversity speaker you thought you would be. <laughs> uh, but there's a couple pieces I share of my diversity story that – uh, that surprise people and kind of open their minds about what they see and observe about me or what they think they see and then who I really am, right? Because we all do have all this, all these identities that and experiences that live under our waterline, you know, if we're like icebergs, which is a model that I teach a lot. So um, it came out when I was 22 and I'm a major, major feminist. Um, I think that was probably my bigger coming out than coming out <laughs> as LGBTQ. Uh, just realizing as a woman, you know, what the world had in store for me and not not really liking that too much. <laughs> and thinking I need some liberation and I need to find my voice and I need to chart my own path. And I need to kind of reject, um, I think, what had been taught to me and what had been planned for me. Um, family-wise and society-wise, culture-wise. So coming out really was a liberation for me from the script. And I realized I had to make my own way, figure out how I was going to, you know, as a woman, I know it sounds strange to say, but not defined by a man. Um, And essentially when you come out, it's, you know, anything is, it's free game. It's like, okay, who do you want to be? How are you going to make your living? I'm a breadwinner now. I mean, I never imagined the life that I have now, like ever. I never thought I would own, own my own company. Um, I just, it's all 
shocking. Um, and yet I love it and I inhabit it, I think, so joyfully. Uh, but it wasn't something I think I saw in my future. And that's a challenge for all women of all backgrounds, you know, that we just don't, we don't have those role models. We don't have someone we can mimic. And um, I really felt, and I still feel, I'm actually one of the few people who has a company of my size, who's writing the books I write, who shares my identity, actually. And uh, so I'm used to being the first, but that doesn't make it right. And it took me a really long time to figure out, like, what am I supposed to do in the world? So I've been out since I was 22. Um, I'm also a musician, as I alluded to earlier. And when I moved to New York to be to study opera, which was such a so fortunate, I ended up getting a couple of vocal surgeries because I kept injuring my voice, and it was really heartbreaking, really uh, emotionally painful. It's a small surgery, but it has like major consequences. And is that similar to the one that I hear that Adele or um, yes. SZA have received? But it's very. Um, they state that it's hard to. Usually you have to do it. It will happen again, but it's very delicate and very. Yes. Di- yeah, that's that's hard. That's very difficult. It is. It's this tiny. Your vocal cords are very, very sensitive, very small. And yet they make this giant sound when you're a singer and they have to be perfect. Like they have to be have this like really perfect action. And, um, you know, I just kept injuring myself. I had to get some um, some nodules removed. You have scar tissue. You don't have the re- vocal resilience. You can't get through eight shows a week, you know. And I had been hoping to have a career as a performer. So uh, I had to reinvent, and um, I was able to – performers make great trainers. And so I lily padded into this world of training because somebody said – you'd be, you love the stage, you'd be great in front of adults, like in a training setting. And I didn't know what that meant. And lo and behold, I was, I got a second master's degree in organizational change, leadership development, um, wasn't DNI because back then it kind of didn't exist. It still <laughs> kind of doesn't. So it's part of the challenge. Like it's not really a scholastic or academic discipline that's very well built out. But I did study leadership and change and adult learning and um, design. You know, d- how, how do you design an experience when you have 25 leaders in a room and you have them the whole day? You know, what do you do with them? How do you take them from point A to point B with exercises and dialogue and teaching and content? And um, I loved that work. I found I was really good at it. Um, I had never b- managed people. I'd never been kind of a, a manager in the sort of true – corporate sense, but I taught leadership and time management and all sorts of things. And uh, yeah, and then I and then I think what happened is as an LGBT person, I realized about eight or nine years ago as I had my company and I was doing leadership that the LGBT community was changing corporate America from the inside. We I had a lot of friends who were the first and most out employees at a lot of the banks, honestly, and the consulting companies. They they were pushing their employer to do more inclusive marketing, to get domestic partner benefits. This was a while ago. Um, and they were bringing the communities, um, the peer pressure of the community to bear, which works really well, um, to say, well, they're doing that and that CEO said that and they funded this or they you know, support this or they're on this index for equality. And it started to – this was a while ago. This, this movement started to go and I thought – could I be, I don't want to be an employee, but could I be in a consultant that brings that identity to bear that is part of my skill set and my lens? And but I could also bring my change management and leadership lens as well. Um, and my female lens, obviously, in a male-dominated business world. 
And um, lo and behold, you know, we were able to kind of, I pivoted the company to focus just on DEI. I attracted some amazing teachers that would agreed to go into the room under our banner and represent us. And I had to learn from them, even though I was the owner of the company, I sit in the back of the room and listen to everything they said who'd been teaching this for 20 years, you know, much longer than I had and taking notes and studying how they presented concepts and thinking to myself, am I ever going to really be an expert in this? And I, I, I really had that thought. I remember it very clearly. I thought maybe I'll always just be the CEO that's selling the folks in to do the work, but it's not really going to be me that knows the work. And um, two books later, <laughs> I mean, none of us are ever done learning the work, but but I do feel there's not a lot of new questions that I get any. Like I'm sort of I'm I'm deeply deeply familiar with most things that come up in the workplace, and to the point now where I can actually anticipate what's going to come up in the Q&A and it's always the same questions and, you know, we see the same things repeat over and over again, um, which is a feeling, really interesting feeling. Like you, it's um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the mastery, 10,000 hours, right? And when you look at something for so long and so many years and you see it in so many different contexts, you basically, you kind of know like what you're looking at. And um, so then the question is how, really the bigger question is how can we engender more change and faster change? That's, that's what I spend my time thinking about. Why is there such resistance? Why is it going so slow? Why are the numbers not getting better? You know, that's what I, that's my task to figure out. Well, I definitely know you're an expert because two reasons. One, if you Google diversity and inclusion <laughs> and even d- diversity and inclusion in New York or diversity and inclusion consultant or diversity and inclusion agency, Jennifer is like on the, within the top three and people <laughs> have mentioned Jennifer everywhere. Um, also, I read your um, your work, Inclusion, Diversity, and the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. That I read that from cover to cover. You oh my did. god! And oh, I, I can definitely say you are an expert because there's so many things. I was like, this is part of it. I didn't know. This is a lot. This is a lot less rigid than I assumed it was. This is um, much more expansive, and it really made the clogs in my mind think. Like I had to. I was like, I, like for instance, I believe. You mentioned about flat workplaces, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I read that part, and I've never seen that anywhere. And I was like, "There's no managers. It's more like it's more like coaching, or essentially mm-hmm. like, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, internal coaches instead of like you're my manager. It's like it's a community of accountability." And I was just like, "What is this? This is interesting." <laughs> the, hmm. What I'm like, "Oh my god!" And the way yeah. you wrote about it was so um, clear because I tried to find it in other spa- other um, sources of work, and you kind of just fed it to me so eloquently <laughs> so um that's awesome it just i couldn't find it any other way so you're definitely an expert in the space thank you thank you so let's talk about that space like how podcasting there are no rules people say oh you can't do this and you can't do that and i'm sure i'm probably gonna have to like change some things in 10 years about <laughs> what i've done to keep to keep <laughs> make sure i don't get fined or whatnot <laughs> but there are really no rules in the space right now no nothing official what are there rules in diversity, equity, inclusion right now? Is it um, is it fast? Well, you mentioned that it is growing fast, but is it growing as fast as we want it to? Is it mm. slow in some places? Like, is it fast in the diversity, but slow in the inclusion <laughs> <laughs> and going over with the equity? Like, is it structured, not structured? Is it How is it moving? Is it moving differently in different industries? Kind of as your take as someone who has, um, you have advised, and led tons of 500 fortune companies and just folks and mentoring folks in the field. 
on how to move forward, what would you say is your inference on like how the entire field is moving right now and right. what it is? <clears throat> I'd say it's dependent on industry. Um, within each industry, there's a group of peer companies or organizations, and everyone's always looking at each other and comparing, right? So um, some industries are pushing each other to be better. Um, and, and that is a net net. It's a great result for us because they, you know, their CEOs on board and they've got a robust team that's not small. So they're respected in the company. So they're doing advanced level work, I would say. And then there's other industries that are super beginner stages and even within each industry, there's also beginners and advanced companies. And so it's hard to kind of say, um, strangely enough, I'll tell you, we do a lot of work with banking and insurance companies, and they've been at this for a long time. Like ADP has been, uh, yeah. I personally have had experience with ADP and Goldman. They mm. are, I was so surprised. They're on it. I know. <laughs> and the tech industry, you'd think is it's full of allegedly young people, it would be somehow more hip to this or, and it's, you know, they have, you know, tons of problems. Just look at the headlines. Um, and so you know, don't assume, I'd say that just based on industry that you're going to be working for a really cool and hip company uh, when it comes to DEI. Like you could find the role of a lifetime in a company that is just starting on their journey. What's most important to me is, you know, we all want to build something. You know, it's one thing to jump into something that's already going, right? And you become a team member in a machine that's already going. But if you're new in some, in some place, you have an opportunity to really build, which is exciting. Um, hard and exciting. Depends. Depends, you know, where your leadership is at on this. Um, your, the buy-in that you're given, the support that you're given, the visibility that the effort is, is given, um, and how seriously it's taken. Um, and that's hard to know when you're interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you may be really wrong or you may be pleasantly surprised. Um, but I think that, so, so, uh, when you're looking for roles and you really are passionate about this work, um, there are new openings happening all over in all kinds of companies. And just because a company has been at it for a long time doesn't mean that necessarily the function is respected. And sometimes companies that are brand new to it are the best opportunity that you could ever have because you've got like a, a runway and a blank slate and you've got tons of support. And so they're really following you. They're asking you, well, what should we do about this? So that's a very different challenge. You're walking into a very like 3.0 effort at like a Goldman. I mean, your role is going to be to learn everything you can because that team is really amazing, you know, uh, and it's very baked. And so it's a very sophisticated effort. It's tied, you know, for instance, the DEI efforts probably – connected to so many other functions like HR and talent management and you know there's 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 a lot of eyes on it and it matters um, in companies with nothing you know it's a greenfield and so you can build all that the, the challenge is if you've never built it and you've <laughs> never seen how it's built you're gonna struggle a bit because you're not going to know what good looks like and so that's why there's there's always kind of groups meaning of DEI practitioners trying to pick each other's brains because we there isn't really a playbook. Um, and so we have to rely on each other to say, well, what have you seen? And um, how do they do it over there? And do you know somebody on that team? And we literally – it's uh, the word for it is co-opetition. It's this beautiful way that we collaborate in our community of practitioners. We're very open with each other. Um, not to share trade secrets and anything inappropriate, but – but we rely on each other and we need to do that because actually 
we as a community can push these entities as an industry together faster if we know what everybody's doing in that industry. So if I can sit with my competitor, my counterpart in my competitor and say, what are you doing for pride? You know, what is the CEO saying? How much money are you spending? What are you, where are you putting your dollars? What kinds of speakers are you having in? Um, how are you measuring ROI, which is return on investment? These are the kinds of things we can, um, we need each other to, we need to be able to see behind the curtain. And that's the beautiful thing about our field because we're very generous people. I mean, we wouldn't do this work. It's not like typical business. You know, it's very <laughs> much like, you know, we're, we're doing it. It's a job, but it's really a mission for so much, so many of us. And, um, and so we have to help each other. So it's a really, it's an interesting field. Um, there are more and more positions being created, as I said. Um, companies as small as, gosh, 100, 200, 300, 400 people might have a DEI role, which is totally new. Um, they may have affinity groups going, which I never saw years ago. I mean, it took maybe a company of 10,000 people before you saw, you know, six affinity groups. And now you'll see them. And, it, and you know, the younger generation's bringing this too. I mean, under 35 talent, which populates younger companies, right, early stage companies, um, they're the ones coming in and they really want to have a voice. They really want to talk about DEI. So they're bringing that change also. I think so the, the, it's really driven by this next generation of talent who, for whom this is a really important value. Um, and that is a huge change. I, I think big corporate is really noticing that this is table stakes for their younger talent. And they're in a panic because they're, <laughs> they're like, uh-oh, you know, they, they, now they're inside our four walls and they're looking at our practices or lack thereof or they're looking at the fact that like it's an entirely male management team that we have or, you know, we think we're losing talent because of our lack of diversity, they're starting to really pay attention. So it's good. It's like this uh, bottom-up pressure, <laughs> uh, which I like and I can leverage <laughs> <laughs> with those executives. When I walk in the room, I say, here's, here's what younger talent wants, needs, what they expect. Here's how you're going to retain them. And here's how you have to talk about it in an intersectional way that resonates with the way they talk about it. Because we talked about it differently. We, our generation, I'm Gen X, baby boomers didn't talk about it at all. <laughs> um, and I'd say maybe Gen X, you know, we grew up in a time when it wasn't, our, our identities weren't celebrated. We sort of had to fit in. We had to assimilate very skillfully. A lot of us are closet, were closeted, are closeted still. Um, and we... The covering is celebrated. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's necessary. It's like we we learned how to hide I, all of our di diversities, not just the LGBT community. But um, if you were a person of color, you didn't talk about, you know, your cultural identity. You certainly didn't celebrate it or draw people's attention to it. If you were a woman, you really were very careful about how much you brought up. Well, I'm offended by that remark as a woman, et cetera. So the covering behaviors, we all did it and we still do it. We still do it um, because when we walk into an organization, we sense what's going to be okay and what's not. We look around. We kind of figure it out. We look upwards. We don't see role models. We're like, what does this company really mean when it comes to me? Um, and then we decide how much of my full self do I bring to this job? And if we decide, well, I'm going to have to be careful about that, then that takes a lot of our energy and, and really um, I think really hurts our potential. And even I, I believe on a um, 
people look at this as minimal, but it's not actually even among even all races. Let's say you're in the United States and you're from the South and you have the culture of the South may not be celebrated as much in the North or in especially corporate culture. So, and especially if you're not from an urban setting, all of a sudden you feel like I have to diminish my accent. I can't really let people know that I'm from Tennessee. I really can't speak about my lifestyle, certain things I've done. Like for instance, um, I, I don't. I think hunting is now more accepted in work culture, but I, mm. you couldn't talk about hunting probably like Mm-mm. like decades ago. You can't go and work on Wall Street and say, "Well, I actually um, I grew up hunting," and people look at you like, "What?" <laughs> and it's just there's a lot of covering I I've seen, and even my parents have the way they've moved through life. Covering has been such a celebrated and expected thing, and then I feel like I always have to constantly be like, "No, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do it. <laughs> it's you. not helpful." <laughs> Um, you're the next generation thank god for you i'm hoping it's hard i know it is you've got to be the change because we've been doing it so long that it becomes a habit you know you just start kind of sweeping yourself under the rug like as a matter of course which is tragic you know but i think we all have gotten way too good at it and what i say to older leaders is i say look times are changing and actually younger talent wants to see more of who you are they're actually expecting that and so i'm hoping that encourages executive level folks that I spent a lot of time with to say, maybe I can be a bit more vulnerable. Maybe I can share more of my diversity story and, and it will actually encourage followership and partnership and colleagues, et cetera, to do the same. Um, because we learned leadership in a different way. It was a different time. It was not at all about, you know, being able to be welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. I mean, the job with job was job and work was separate than personal life. And, you know, we were very buttoned up about it and we were very, we had these separate domains and now it's 24 seven. It's right. It's um, celebration of the individual. Like you said, the book talked to first book talked about flat workplaces, you know, you know, it's more kind of employee driven. Like who do you want to be? What do you want to be working on? Who do you want to be working with? Are you feeling challenged? You know, if not, what can we do to enable you to feel that? Cause we want you to stay. And so instead of treating people like cogs and saying stick to the job description, smart companies are, tr- are playing with that. And they're thinking, well, you know, they may, they may leave us and go to Google or they may leave us and start their own company. How can we keep them here? How can we keep them stimulated? How can we make sure they feel seen and feel that sense of belonging so that they'll stay and thrive here versus the many other choices that they have? So that's a very compelling argument I find for the older generations to kind of get them to pay attention. And that makes sense. Either promote harmony or, or a revolt. And That's you don't right. want either one. That's I mean, right. you don't want the revolt. Um, <laughs> They'll vote with their feet. Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, yeah. So for many folks, and you, JBC, and just to re- reiterate, Jennifer Brown Consulting, has done such amazing things. Like people have told me about your work and I'm just like floored and just seeing the website and just basically reading upon your, it's just a machine. (laughs) And a lot of folks are either consult or you said work in house. Mm -hmm. What are the different ways that people can um, unofficially, sorry, not unofficially formally and informally get involved in DEI and get into the profession? So many ways. Um, Well, I'm a big fan of school. Right. So if you're doing another profession and you think DEI is really where your passions lie, um, schooling or certificate or classes, really, I recommend that will give you a a personal sense of legitimacy. Right. And I think that's so important for our confidence, but it's also kind of giving you the toolkit, 
if you will, um, to be that practitioner someday. So start to really, you know, do your job job, but like start investing in this new career. Um, network with people, take them to coffee. <laughs> you know, you, you and I met sort of in that way. <laughs> um, but find people to that who do this for a living, either internally or externally, ask for time with them. You know, say, how did you get here? What did you study? A lot of us didn't study anything. We kind of, um, be, we were the passionate sort of board member or advocate or we were part of a community organization or, you know, we were inside a company doing affinity group work. Um, so we find our voice that way and that's where we get bitten by the bug, I think. And we realize, do people actually do this for a living? Like, you mean I could get paid to do it? So, but that's something that I think you've got to understand how workplaces work. Um, I think you're at an advantage if you've spent time in a company that 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 is a substantial size and that you've witnessed how do decisions get made? How do we generate buy-in? Um, what is the role of leadership? Um, when you kind of understand how the work world works – um, versus if perhaps you're coming from like academia or activism or a community organization. What's really that's why I'm so grateful I studied leadership development because it gave me a framework to understand um, how do I connect DEI work into a larger conversation that's going on in most companies, which is how do we attract and retain people? And so, so recruiting and um and like you said, retention. So is that more like within human resources yes. and is it is is it some of it not yeah i think hr actually is a great discipline to study when in doubt if that's if that's what you can get your hands on being part of sherm or the um, american society of training and development i think it's called atd because training is a big part of dni work and i like race forward huge yes, training organization exactly exactly <laughs> like if you love being in front of people and you like to teach then maybe your niche within DEI work is facilitation. And maybe then you want to focus in on how do I – then how do I facilitate? Like how do I build that skill set up? What do I need to learn? I always re recommend people think about adult learning theory, um, uh, facilitation skills. If you can find a certificate with a class on that, it's actually a discipline. and uh, it's, it's an art and a science. The science part is what you really need to learn. Um, it's also instructional design is hugely important for practitioners. Um, understanding, like I was talking about earlier, how do you structure, how do you write a lesson plan for people in the workplace? Like when you want to teach something, whether you have 45 minutes or three days and you're, you're offsite somewhere or you have to stand up and present. Um, you've got to be I think it's important to be a pretty good speaker in this work because a lot of this is storytelling. A lot of it is influencing. A lot of it is building credibility with others um, and doing that and speaking other people's language and also speaking the business case. So we all say in DEI that you got to understand what does this have to do with the organization? And the most the, – the, the way we generate understanding and buy-in often, not always, but often, is this impacts your bottom line in terms of, okay, you know, you want to hire, hire employees that look like the rest of the world, that look like your customers. Um, you want to retain them. You don't just want to hire them and then have them leave two years later because the culture is uncomfortable mm -hmm. for them. So you want to keep them, which means leadership development, talent management. What are we doing with them? How are we investing in them? Mentorship. Et cetera. And then and then you've got to think about the marketplace and you know your customers are the world is very diverse. 
And many of these companies are in a panic because they don't reflect the diversity of the world of customers, right? And they're realizing that. And that's why they often hire their first person to say, mm -hmm. we're losing women and people of color at a really fast rate. You know, our numbers aren't improving. Um, we're having to, our customer base is shifting and we don't feel we understand them. And we don't have the people on the inside that are from those customer demographics. And so the way we, we make that case is, is we sort of look at each one of those things and every practitioner has to be able to speak about like, what are you doing every day and how is what you're doing driving each one of those things? That's what we mean when we talk about the business case. Um, and it's, it's data oriented. It's very, very left brain. It's not my happy place myself because <laughs> I'm more of a storyteller, speaker, heart kind of person. Sweet. And I like to influence people that way. <laughs> so let's lean into that a little more too, because I know like in the fundraising field, some folks are like, more front like I've been a major right. gift officer and some people can speak in front of people and they want to be up front and do corporate fundraising however there's some people like I don't want to be in front of people but I'm really good with data or I'm really good with my writing mm -hmm. or I'm really good with communicating just not in person right so tell us a little bit more about like that data piece and how folks can move into it if they're more introverted yes. in the workplace and they're like I don't want to be <laughs> speaking in front of people and I don't necessarily want to train people face to face what type of um, options are there for folks like that? There are a lot of options. It's just like anything else. You need a functional diversity of thought, right, on a team. So most DEI teams I know and work with have the data analytics people. And then they also have, like, the front-facing people. So everybody has complementary roles. It's really important. So if you love crunching data... There is tons of workplace data work to be done when it comes to DEI, like the composition of your workplace, the um, you get your data analytics from HR, you analyze the organization, you make recommendations, and you can do all of that from, um, from a backseat and not have to be the maybe extrovert's um, life, which is the now you have to go into the room and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, we all rely, if I'm the front person, I rely on the, the folks behind the scenes big time because and and they rely on me right we all have a role to play in creating like a whole picture and you know I just happen to be I happen to be the one that's in the room making it sing but um and that's my facilitator background but I always worked with designers actually even when I was a leadership trainer which who gave me a lesson plan who said like here's what you're presenting like how are you feel comfortable about it? Is there any questions you have? Um, what more information you do you need to then go in and make the case? And I, you can't, I can't do what I do without that. Like it's a sort of yin and yang of the work. The composer and the singer. I like That's that right. A lot. The stage director <laughs> and the actor. Like it's all you. One cannot exist without the other. So as we know that this work is extremely heavy, and you're visiting a lot of folks that are, it's not a muscle they flexed, and there's a lot of pushback and frustration and then at times you have to revisit your own relationship with diversity equity and inclusion how do you how do you jennifer as a human being how do you recuperate how do, what does jennifer do for jennifer <laughs> to kind of get your energies aligned back and kind of say i can i need some rest or i need to revisit myself what do you do not enough <laughs> <laughs> you talk to anybody in this work and we none of us do self-care well it's really interesting um because we're so passionate we almost forget about our needs um, because our passion drives us every day and we have this sort of unlimited well of goodwill and love and positivity because you have to. I mean, you can't wake up and look at these, love, I love them, bless their hearts, but these broken 
workplaces, you know, where like, say you're looking at focus group data and people are feeling like really demoralized or certain groups are like, we are never heard. We never listened to, you know, the company says one thing and does another. And day after day, you're collecting this information, you're feeding it back. And then, like you said, you're feeding it back to people who may not be very empathetic for it. Right. And you have to sit there and make the business case for, you know, the whole time because they're asking why, why is this important? Why do we have to do this? Like, you know, we don't want to require people to care about this, you know, so you're dealing with pushback. But meantime, you, I always say you're giving this feedback and you can see yourself in the feedback because it off, it's often your experience too. Like you're, you're collecting data on the very experiences that you had and you're also maybe still having, you know, because often the DEI team, we're people, you know, we're not just practitioners. We're not just leading the effort. We are impacted by bias and stereotypes and microaggressions, probably more than most actually, because we're the ones that are intentionally putting ourselves in those conversations. <laughs> and then people say the darndest things <laughs> and we're like, oh my gosh, like I just, I'm out of here, you know? And the thing is you can't, you can't bail out. You have to hang in. And, um, this is why I think that the way we support each other in community is so important You've got to be so, sadly, you've got to be so buttoned up and so professional when you're in your workplace leading this work. You have to kind of be very strong, very professional, very positive, never shaming. You can't really be angry, right? You you get judged if you're a bit too, too florid and too passionate. Um, and so we have to walk this really fine line because otherwise we'll trigger people's biases. Right. Mm. If I'm the angry woman, right, or I'm the strident gay person, um, we have to modulate that because we need to have the business conversation, right? We always have to kind of take our passion and orient it around the language that makes sense to the business. That reorientation is the exhausting part, part because you and I know it. This business case should just make itself. Right. It makes perfect sense. It, yeah. <laughs> However, um, we have to, I always think of myself, it feels like I'm twisting myself into, up into a pretzel, trying to figure out like, what, what are they going to hear and what are they going to listen to and what's going to convince them and what's going to unlock this. And every person's different too. So it's not even just like you can globalize a group. You know, you, you could look, be looking at a group of 15 executives and each one of them has a different diversity story. Some of them are going to be allies. Some of them are going to have a queer kid. Or, you know, they're going to have brown kids and it's a white leader and like they're on board, you know, but they don't they don't know how to speak about it. There's going to be other people who are really resistant. Like, I don't care about this. I think it's a nuisance. It's not a priority. And I've seen a lot of videos on that, too. It's like kind of confusing. I'm like, well, this applies to you, too. I know, but they don't <laughs> they don't think it does. And I think we need to do a better job as you open this session with is. This is everybody's opportunity and everyone can connect into this. But I think traditionally we – you asked earlier what's the sort of definitions of the terms. It was diversity was the focus for a long time and really for most of the time that we've been having this conversation. So if you're a white, straight, cisgender man, most of them hear this, the D word, and think it doesn't have to do with them. And so they kind of check out. And the checking out piece – I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but the checking out piece um, is a problem when it comes to leadership around this, right? We can't afford to have large groups of people saying, well, this isn't my issue. It doesn't apply to me. I don't know how it connects into my work. 
or my ability to, to attract and retain the best talent. We've got to make that case more succinctly and more powerfully and more convincingly. But I think we've we've bit a bit focused most on affected communities and kind of shoring them up, meaning supporting the affinity groups, uh, making sure people find each other, have community. And I'm such a believer in all those things, so I'm definitely not knocking it. We need it. We need it desperately. But we also have to be thinking about how will we get the quote-unquote majority folks to say, you know, I – Maybe I can start to do more. Maybe I can start to learn. Maybe, and this is my second book, maybe I can, you know, try one new thing. Maybe I can take a step into this, not be afraid of saying the wrong thing, not be afraid of intruding. Um, maybe I have a diversity story to share, but I'm not sure what it is, you know, but, but maybe I can, maybe I can start to be on the journey to lead around this. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be. That's, I think, the next huge challenge for all of us because right now there's only a few of us really promoting this work, like statistically as a percentage of every workforce. It's a very small number of us and it's very difficult to be successful when you're a, you are a mighty group but you're a small group. So how do we enlist others? And I think that we've got to get really creative with that. Well, we're going to lean into that soon. So – I still have Jennifer for more time. We're going to actually run into break, but on their next part, which please tune in, we will be discussing um, how to get more people into the space, um, more about Jennifer's very, very upcoming book, <laughs> and kind of dis- and to discuss what how your book has kind of changed people's lives. We will discuss that. But we're going to move into break, everyone, and we'll see you soon. <laughs> 